very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on subscribe. Give yourself the gift of truth. And tonight, he's back to discuss the great ontological questions and so much more. Our special guest is a veteran of this radio show, Neil Kramer, right now on Veritas. Neil Kramer is an English writer, philosopher, and teacher specializing in the fields of consciousness, metaphysics, and mysticism. Kramer has made a lifelong independent study of philosophy, mystical traditions, religion, inner alchemy, occultism, and esoteric world history. He shares his path of transformation and empowerment in writings, interviews, and lectures, as well as giving one-on-one teachings and group workshops. He's a frequent guest on leading alternative radio and internet shows, enjoying international audiences and enthusiastic support. His work regularly features on cutting-edge websites, news portals, and popular television networks in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Europe. Neil speaks on many fascinating subjects and is renowned for his unique blend of lucidity, empowerment, and authenticity. And to learn more about Neil Kramer, visit his website at neilkramer.com and listen to all the Veritas interviews we have conducted with him in the past. I think this is the sixth one. Also, Neil will be conducting a workshop titled Esoteric Roots in downtown Portland at the Hotel Monaco in September the 13th and 14th, 2014. If you have a chance to attend, I'm telling you. You will really come out with new and important knowledge, or as Neil calls it, philosophy for living. Visit neilkramer.com forward slash event for, for more information. And directly from Oregon, USA, I'm privileged to introduce my good friend, Neil Kramer. Hello, Neil. Welcome back to Veritas. Hi, Mel. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. It's always it's always a delight. Always a pleasure to have you back, Neil. You know, whenever I'm getting ready to interview you, I imagine the Library of Alexandria Times and the mystery schools and how people would gather around philosophers to receive new knowledge. And that's how it feels when you're around, especially because you always bring something new. I always ask you the same question. How in the world do you keep so much knowledge new? Well, a long time ago, somebody said to me, the great gift of a poet is that they can find truth and beauty in anything at all anywhere in life and i 
very much am attracted to the idea of the the poetry of philosophy in that you can look at these great big wonderful ideas and then you can look at the simple little things the flowers growing in your garden or i posted some pictures of some newts i was watching diving in a pond in the forest the other day and to me the every element of life all of nature and all of supernature is interesting and there is a poetry to it and philosophy is just a way of approaching that um to let help us live more fulfilling and interesting and fascinating lives and to make us better people and um that element of poetry means that you can you can shine your philosophical light upon anything really absolutely anything and i know we're going to probably talk about all different kinds of things, uh, esoteric things and spiritual things, but p- political things and things to do with family and things to do with, you know, finance, everything really. So the, the job of the philosopher is to bring that life into every subject, into every corner and a perspective. You know, that's what it's all about, about is bringing a perspective of, empowerment and as you you read out that little tagline on my website philosophy for living it's not an abstract thing in a book that we look at you know by the fireside with a glass of cognac or whatever as nice as that might be it's something that we bring into the bloody supermarket and driving along the highway and uh having babies and burying relatives and going to school it's everywhere everywhere and that's what keeps it fresh and, and believe me, folks, we don't mean to be, uh, how can I explain, what's the word I want to use, uh, Pollyannish here, saying that everything is good and, and dandy, because I know we're living in chaotic times. But I've followed some of your travels. I see that you have a lot of photography, so I presume that you're also a photographer. And it doesn't matter if Neil is in Chernobyl. He always finds a way to photograph something of beauty. And I think the same thing can happen to us in everyday life, we can find something positive. We can find something beautiful around us. It doesn't matter if we're living in chaotic times. Well, why don't we start with the ontological questions or what I call the primordial questions that gave rise to this very program, the questions you would be asked and answered personally on a regular basis. Why don't we start from there? Yeah, I think that's that's the thing that drives most people. And looking through your website a few days ago to see what who you've been talking to and what kind of things you've been talking about it's the familiar big questions of life and all those things and you know ontology just being this particular section really of metaphysics where we deal with the nature of existence you know what is it what's it for what does it mean and everybody approaches that from a different angle and i know for you for example one way in was through the question of extraterrestrials and ufos to say there is other entities out there in the universe who appear to interact with us and that's we always have a soft spot for the one of our initial pathways and i imagine when you're an old man mel and you sat there with your grandchildren on your knee playing your guitar or whatever you'll still have that soft spot for ufos and for the question of the extraterrestrial presence and for me one of my soft spots was um zen buddhism which was a way in for me very early on when i was a young very young man in my early late teens early 20s 
And they, they ask those questions on a regular basis. Um, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing here? Um, what does it mean? And how can we know more? And from Hindu spiritual philosophy, which is a great system of life and of culture, it's not just um, like Socrates and Plato, you know, some wise men who wander about. Hindu spiritual philosophy is a way of life, and it's interpenetrated into uh, what you do in the kitchen as much as what you do in the temple, which is very attractive to me. And then it, Buddhism is a an outshooting of this that obviously then came through into China from India. And then further into Japan was Zen Buddhism. And it keeps getting stripped down more and more and more and more and more minim minimalist. So on the one hand, in your left hand, you have these great poetic texts of Hindu philosophy, of, of original uh, spiritual mastery and spiritual perception. And there's this great vast volumes and tomes of this stuff. Very difficult to read some of it as well. And what the Japanese brought to it was this great starkness, this great minimalism. So in the right hand, you hold this what, like one slim volume of a, a Zen monk, which appealed to me. I like to strip out everything except the very core of it. And of course, that's a very subjective thing for the individual. What Zen does is it takes you right to the thing that actually counts. So to me, it asked... It gave me permission to take myself seriously, to say, well, you are just a guy wandering about like anyone else. You are asking questions that have been, perhaps we could say, unresolved <laughs> for thousands of years, and you're yeah. just another person having a go. But you should have a go. And in fact, you won't fulfill yourself and you won't be satisfied until you do so. And you should continue to ask those questions. So as a very young man, it gave me confidence to take myself seriously enough to tackle those questions. And philosophy gives you a little bit more language and vocabulary, to be honest, to, to go a little bit further. But it is actually mysticism which takes that even a step further. So you could say that philosophy teaches you how to think about things, but it is very abstract. It's removed from the business of it, the you know the crux of the matter, in a, in a manner of speaking. Whereas mysticism teaches us what to actually do about these ontological questions of life. Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? It gives you actions and ways forward. It's, it is experiential in its very nature. So the mystic treats their own life, their own self, as the very instrument for inquiry. So you become your own lens through which to look. And that's the wonderful thing about it. So you can ask these questions in mysticism. You can look at some other answers that people have given, but always it's promoting and proposing that you answer it yourself. So the great uh, student, the great mystical student who looks into these things is taught to say, on the first year of your spiritual education, you ask yourself the question, what am I? And the, the, the student will say, well, I'm a human being. And that's not bad, not a bad answer, but not, not right. And then a whole year goes by and you, okay, I'm, I am a spiritual essence having a human experience. Okay. That's a better answer, but still no, that's not it. And then you get cleverer and a whole year's gone past again. 
and you've learned more and more about life and then you're in your 20s or whatever you've seen more things you've been to more places you've tasted more again the question what am i you say well i am a divine emanation experiencing what it is to be in the third dimensional space through this homo sapien biological shell with this mind with this great interplay of individuality and the undifferentiated mind of life of the word of the logos so well that's a good answer but you're trying to be too clever it's too clever that and that's that's the nice fusion of zen and mysticism that it won't let you get away with just this metaphysical waffle you can use big words and say interesting sounding things but it's still that's not the right answer and some people are dissuaded by that and they think well nobody knows the answer to these questions so let's just forget it and do something else but for me the very fact that on this earth in my view nobody knows the answer to the questions why are we here what we're we supposed to do what are we what does it mean how can we know more nobody knows nobody knows for sure and to me that's very very interesting and as i said in my book the unfoldment it gives you a clue as to something like the whole system nobody knows what's going on nobody not a single person and that to me shows that by design you're not supposed to have any concrete knowing of what it is you have to kind of piece it together by yourself you have to do it all on your own you see and that ontology and that spirituality and philosophy and metaphysics and mysticism shows you that you have to take it upon yourself to go and do this thing you can join a, a temple or you can be a christian or a catholic or a rosicrucian or something if you want to be and that they have use they will show you things that have some value but always a point is reached a threshold where it's not enough and you want to move on to the next level and the great teachers and even in modern times people like rudolf steiner and george gurdjieff and in later times alan watts for all their imperfections and all their humanness right they nevertheless knew how to communicate this appetite for these big questions of life these ontological questions and say what is it that we're doing here well you can find out but you can only find out by suspending the way you used to think about the world and you have to kind of have a big house clearing session and you can't just be a normal man and find out you know in your spare time you've got to take it seriously and you've got to really dive into it so then that question comes back on the individual to think have i config have i configured my life in the correct way to give enough juice to this and that's that's the secret that you can find out the answers to those questions in a satisfactory manner as long as you put enough let's say psychic juice into it as as much commitment and perseverance as you can and esoterically speaking i would say as much light into it as you can you can very closely equate consciousness with light and say as you have a set amount of that so let's say 100 units and everything you do uses one little unit up the business of spiritual development needs nearly all of it <laughs> so you have to make a determination 
about what it is you actually want to know. So really, I think what people are saying is they're curious about it, but actually to get an answer to what am I will change your life and they're not ready for that. So they don't really want to know. So what they'd rather do is read about someone else who asked that question and what their answer was. Because you see, you can never answer for anyone else. If you were to say to me, what am I? I can't answer that because it's a different question and a different answer for you. You can only do it for yourself. So philosophy teaches the knowledge, but mysticism teaches you to experience and, and in essence, it transmutes the knowledge into wisdom by yes. compelling you to experience the knowledge and turning into it into uh, wisdom. You yeah. know, I remember growing up, and, and, you know, but jigsaw puzzles, even if it, if it would take somebody three days to finish, I had to finish and I didn't care if it was midnight, even if I had to go to bed. Then video games, I had to go to the next level because I always wanted to know what was beyond the next level. Yeah. And now the questions of, as you said, extraterrestrial life, do we have extraterrestrial life? Are they interacting with us? You know, where do we come from? All these magnificent, you know, cities that we're finding around the world that we yeah. cannot even explain how they were built and nobody not even the best archaeologists have the answer that fire under my my chair right here is what keeps me compelled to to move forward yeah that's right and that's that's the the fascination of life to say that if if you have that fascination and engage with it it goes beyond the stage of just being a curiosity and it takes you to something where you you realize that that's actually what starts to fulfill you and in um, my mystical kind of heritage and the the organizations and the groups of men that I studied with and looked at all these different issues we used to discuss um, different ways of approaching this and my one of the things I do in my work as I'm sure most of your guests do is you you tend to synthesize things in your own way, in your own language. And let's say that half of what we all do is uh, developing pre-existing wisdom. We take something and we work with it. And I have this phrase as well, you know, wisdom wants itself to be developed. Wisdom wants to be developed. So it's not done. It's not finished. It's like a piece of creation that wants to refine and it wants us to take it. Uh, thank that wisdom for its existence, but then work it, take it to the next level, like a piece of music that can be crafted and become even more beautiful. So half of it is what pre-exists and we take on. And the other half of it is our own unique individuality. So who you are is a unique way of life experiencing itself through you. Who I am is another completely specific, customized, unique way of life experiencing itself. And one of my... Uh, methods of synthesis is to say that uh, there are these root teachings that we come here to get involved with and it's through this work that we start to approach those great questions and the root teachings I would say seven of them if you could boil it down into the lowest possible number I would say there are seven and they they are there to comprehend and to examine and to become very intimate with in your own life and that those teachings are these, separation, transience, identity, will, being, merging, and transcendence. So even if you take the very first one, separation, the very, very first thing that happens when you show up 
is that you're separated from creation, from divinity. For a minute, your consciousness is severed from every other consciousness, and it's just a little unique one unit. As soon as your fetus is developed to a certain stage, that's it. You're on your own for the whole of the physical journey from that point. And it's a great teaching being on your own, coming in on your own, going out on your own. And for much of our life, even when we've got friends and family close to us, we are on our own. Our thoughts are our own and our dreams. When we go to sleep, we go back to being alone again. And we drive in our cars and we walk down the street and we have these little thoughts and reflections. And it's all about separation to say, this thing being distinct and isolated is a way of taking a little piece of consciousness and doing whatever you want with it. And you could be very sad and lonely, or you could be very solitary and strong and happy. And it's all about attitude. So the teaching of separation fosters this great strength in a man, in a woman. And you can't have that any other way than by being involved in separation. So that's an example of a root teaching. We'll say one more and then we'll move on because we could do a whole show on this. But, you know, the transitioning of life, the transience of life, the constant flux of life is one of the other teachings that as soon as you realize, okay, well, I am an individual unit. We, we have a separation. Consciousness is all joined up. But boy, oh boy, self is separate. And when you get that, one of the first things you notice is that nothing stays the same for very long. Everything is constantly shifting and in this tremendous amount of flux. And that's one of the hardest things for people to deal with. And that is where most people's uh, mystical path, whether they know it or not, ends. So they don't go on to the other root teachings because they can't quite deal with the transient nature of reality. They can't quite deal with it. So in the West in particular, we create these illusions of staticness and of sameness and of tradition. And you have a house and you do this and you have a garden and you do this. And you go to college and you go to work and you have this and you have Thanksgiving and you have Christmas and you wear this kind of shirt and she wears these kind of shoes. And all these things are pretending that life stays the same. And it doesn't. It's, it's in such incredible flux. It's, it's scary. And in the West and in the East, we don't really want to think about that because, of course, the great question with transience is the mortality question that you realize you have a very, very brief time here and then it's all gone. And all that self and all that investment in self has disappeared somehow. And so in, we have a taboo against this mortality question, against death. And death is seen as this termination point rather than just an exit, which is really a better way of describing it. It's a gateway. But in our culture, more than our society of, of humans and more than our religions, which don't help us tremendously right now, but our culture that we grow up with in elementary school and high school and business and small businesses and corporate businesses and colleges, our culture through the media, through the institutions tells us that death is to be avoided at all costs. And you do that through tradition and through repetition. And the great cycle of repetition staves death off. It keeps it at arm's length. And 
the spiritual student, as soon as they come into their own power of knowledge and perception, has to look back on that. And by this time, you've already had 20 years of this conditioning and decondition to say, no, I don't think that is the case. And if, in fact, everything is cool and everything has an eternal aspect and death is just a, a milestone rather than any kind of termination point, that really changes what I'm prepared to risk and what I'm prepared to do and how far I'm prepared to push out in life. And it, the idea of tradition is not quite as appealing anymore. Some, some of them are nice. You know, we all like fireworks and meals with people who we love and so on and so forth. That's fine. But the traditions that keep us away from growth, um, we don't really want anything to do with anymore. So that's why you get these mysterious figures, the hermits and the Gandalfs and the Merlins and the shamans. They're always on the edge of the village because they unsettle people, because they, they crack the paradigm, they iconoclastic, they spoil the traditions. You see, spiritual people are always spoiling the traditions for everybody else. So when somebody figures out that somebody is very metaphysical or has a magical aspect, there's an element of curiosity, but there's also an element of fear because it's very disturbing when someone has that great lantern of truth inside them because it dissolves all the fabrications and all the little deceits and lies about mortality, about what it is we're doing, and about suppressing those questions of why we're here and what we're supposed to do. So it's, it requires a great degree of courage, this, this thing. And once you get into it, as if you really do it properly, in my view, it brings in all the questions of UFOs and conspiracy and psychology and education and finance and psychology. Everything is part of the philosophy of a human being. Everything is part of it. And then ev everything's up for grabs. All the cards that used to be face down on the table start to get turned face up. And that's very radical. You know, that scares people. But for me, I find it exciting. You know, I'm always talking about belief or lack thereof, in my opinion. And, and I get attacked sometimes. Somebody wrote to me the other day and said, Mel, if the Wright brothers didn't believe that they could fly, we wouldn't be flying today. And that's a great point. But to me, a belief blinds us from the truth. The way I see it, we have this inner no knowing constantly attempting to bring new awareness by, by presenting us with new information so that we yeah. can look at, at new viewpoints without being subject to the demands or, or our allegiance or loyalty to our belief system. But beliefs can be changed or discarded as our knowledge and experience show us their inadequacy, leaving room for an expansion of your consciousness and enabling us to accept new ideas and information as they are presented to us. And I, I know I'm getting deeper, but I'm, I'm talking with Neil Kramer, so you have to expect that. So there's infinite knowledge available to us, and, and we can deepen our awareness and wisdom if we will make room for it by questioning, questioning our beliefs in response to new information. Do you agree with that? I do. I don't think beliefs are necessary, really. I don't really have any. I can't think of any that I have. Good. I'm not alone. Yeah, I don't really feel the need for them. It doesn't necessarily take any of the faith out of certain things that I have. I have faith in my friends' abilities. I have faith in beautiful music and what it can do for me emotionally. I have 
faith in my wife's cooking, which is amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. there's, all, there's all kinds of wonderful things that you can pour projections and expectations and hopes and dreams and understanding of what is and what it might be and what it could be. You know, that's all fine. But when you believe something, like I don't believe there's extraterrestrials or I don't believe that the government are trying to harm us, you, you're making a proclamation um, that's essentially saying, look, I have this boundary and I have to have this boundary and don't step over it or we're, we're all in a mess. And if somebody says that, I think, fine, but I can't talk to you because I don't transact with belief systems. It doesn't work for me that. So I can respect someone who says that. So if someone says, look, I believe there's a God, I believe Jesus Christ is our savior. He came to show us the way and through accepting Christ into your life, we will then find salvation. If somebody says that to me, I can respect that because I understand it. I don't agree with it and I don't see the reality of that. It doesn't work for me in quite the same way. I can understand what they're saying to me though. They're saying this is a paradigm that works for me and I'm not about to eject that all at once. So once you start to rub out one belief, people have an innate knowing that all the others start to go very quickly. So if you, it's like a, a virus on your computer hard drive. Suddenly one of your documents has gone and then a JPEG's gone and the next minute you look and the whole bloody thing started to delete. So you have to protect your beliefs. You have to defend them, you know, defend the truth, you know, as if it needs defending. I think truth can probably look after itself quite well, can't it? But people who have beliefs have to defend them. And I think that whenever you're defending something quite in that way, something's wrong. So I understand people who say, well, we have to protect the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and stuff. And you and I have talked about this. And I agree with that to some extent because a republic is better than just a, an empire or a monarchy, although they are connected. And so if somebody says to me, you know, do you agree with the First and Second Amendment and the Fourth Amendment? I do. I do. I really do. I think they're great. I think they're important. But really, philosophically, we don't need to believe anything. It's not necessary. You can do quite the same without any of them. And the advantage is in not having a belief that your knowledge increases, which is nice. But more importantly, the knowledge you have available to you then starts to become applied, as you said earlier, Mel. And applied knowledge is wisdom. Because once you apply it into the dirty, messy, stinky business of living actual life, not just on a screen or a piece of paper, but the life in front of you, like the, the onion that you cut open that's so delicious but stinky and brings tears to the eyes, rather like life, that's where the wisdom is necessary. And if you believe, if you don't believe in that, you can't make contact with it. So I, I've been experimenting with this for many years and I can't really think of any beliefs I have. You know, I can't really think. And I'll use the word in spoken language. I'll say, well, I believe in the, the spirit of the Republic or I believe that, um, you know, Metallica might make a new album that's quite good. I don't know, but they might do. You know, so you'll, you'll say something about belief and we understand what that means. But really philosophically, metaphysically speaking, I haven't used belief for 10 years now. Well, it's almost as if you're in a campsite somewhere in the forest and you're surrounded by a wall and all you see is the campsite. 
but you don't see the beauty around it. Or if you're a fish in the ocean and you're told there's nothing else outside of this ocean, and it's almost as if it's a, a sin, if you want to use religious terms, to even look outside. And to me, that programming, and again, I, I don't mean to, to, to offend anybody who's religious. I, no, I, no, I appreciate no. and respect that. But why is it that when somebody wants to look outside those parameters, we are demonized. And I literally say that. The devil is within you if you're questioning the book. <laughs> well, I gave a talk at a Methodist church a little while ago, uh, locally where I live. They invited me. I talked about Christian mysticism. Uh, so, I, you know, stuck to subjects that were relatively safe and respectful to the audience mm -hmm. of, you know, mature Christian Methodist dudes, right? And what a great experience it was and how wonderful it was. And I think like any organization, if you get, I wrote about this recently in, in, in speaking with a, with a guy, if you get a good group of people, whether they're Mormons or Sufis or, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you get a good group of people, you can use any sort of framework to examine life, whether it is the Church of the Latter-day Saints or whether it's, uh, you know, Sikhism or whether it's evangelical, you know, philosophy or, as I said in this little interview, um, examining the way the Amish live and their um, rejection of technology. Mm -hmm. Now is starting to look quite attractive yes. to me, what they decided to do, and the quality of life and having had interactions with those guys where I used to live in upstate New York, which you probably know, but many Europeans and further afield, you don't think of New York, but it's very green and rural and beautiful, and it's right. bigger than the whole of England. You know, it's massive. And there's a lot of Amish people there, um, and they have a very good quality of life as long as the people are good. And although they have this particular view of reality, it's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. And some of them now, there's this new movement within the Amish communities where you can bring in other spiritual ideas. And that's never happened before. It's literally just started happening in the last two years. Prior to that, you were cast out, you know, and that was the end of it. And everyone pretended you didn't exist and you were excommunicated and all that dreadful nonsense. Of any, Anyone that does that, you can put a big question mark on the whole thing because that's silly. It's like children in the playground ignoring each other. It's just silly. But some of the communities realize that they have created something of great strength and they have a, a reaction against the, the horrors of Facebook and Twitter and all that dreadful nonsense that, you know, we have to touch to some degree in our life, particularly in, if you're having your business online like you and I do. But really, socially, is a bit of a disaster, I think. And they knew that a long time ago. And the internet is not this great, fantastic, exciting thing. It's something that is a very dangerous technology when misunderstood, rather like nuclear power. It can be quite good. But without wisdom, if something goes wrong, it can be disastrous, you know, absolutely disastrous. And so they have something that for many Westerners disappeared in the 40s and 50s, just after the Second World War, which is community, and not just community amongst middle-aged men and women, but amongst children and old people, and the interplay of all those, you know, three, four, five generations, it's, it's unbelievably healthy, and what they know about the land and the plants and each other, and it works, you know, it works, as long as 
the beliefs don't become these, you know, decrees, this, this very hard dogma. And as long as people say, well, this is a way of life which serves us and we find value in and we have a belief in and we find a spiritual connection through this system, respect that and we can just blur the boundaries a little bit where there's exceptional circumstances and consider some other things, consider some other views. And so I've been very pleased in my own research in, in real life with people in front of my face to see that in um, Christian communities, whether they're fundamentalist in a sense or whether they're very broad and progressive, there's always room for movement. There is always room to do something else. And that that's that legitimizes some of the stuff. And it, it's really more agile here in a way. Whereas in Europe, you know, after the Second World War, people were so sick of it and to see millions of your brothers and sisters and mums and dads murdered deleted from reality by a completely unnecessary war it became a secular place so if you go to britain now the churches they're they're, they're disappearing they're just curiosities nobody goes to church anymore they it's like something like you know attendance has dropped 70 something percent from 1946 just after the second world war to today like nobody goes anymore because they've had enough of it so it didn't move you see it didn't grow with people it stayed the same so i think the secret of it is that it must always reflect its environment like a mirror if it doesn't if it stays the same you know there's no reason for us to cling to just whatever the King James translation from whatever 15, six, you know, we, we can have another view of it, another understanding of it to say, well, when they say sin, they don't mean do something wrong. They mean misconceive. You know, did you know that? Do people realize that, that to sin means to think incorrectly? doesn't mean to do something wrong. Or if we would talk about Buddhism, you know, um, they're not precepts, the precepts of Buddhism, they're guidelines. There are no precepts. The word is mistranslated. Nirvana means not some great paradise. It means to let go, to breathe, to exhale. And so those translations now, when we examine Sanskrit and Pali, when we're looking at Buddhism, and when we examine uh, Hebrew and Greek and Coptic and all these different things, when we look at Christianity, we can have a better translation than they ever could have done in the 16th century. Let's have another go at it. You know, that's my view. Well, since you're talking about the Amish, I, I hardly watch TV, but I do watch certain shows like, you know, years ago, Jericho or Walking Dead or Falling Skies. You know, it's it's all about different plots, but in essence, it's all, sur all surviving when the grid goes down. Yeah. And I can only think of native tribes or, or the Amish because they have learned how to survive. And years ago, we would think of them as very antiquated and, and very backward. But more and more people are paying attention to them because they know it's not a matter of if, but when the grit will go down. Yeah. And shouldn't we be learning from those people who are already living under those conditions? I think so. I think there's a nice blend of the two where you can get people who have skills and appreciation across the board, but you have to go to the people who know the land and how to interact with it. And those are, for us, it's people like, you know, uh, the Amish, who we have a 
perhaps a closer connection to. And if you're very mature and very sophisticated and you take the time and effort to learn other languages, even better in a way is to go for people who've been here much longer than Native American people. So in the Pacific Northwest where I live, I live on the coast now, uh, the great richness of uh, indigenous knowledge here, far before any stuff, you know, from... Um, presidents like Washington and Adams and Jeff, way before any of those people came along. There's a people here for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, and they know what every plant is and they know what to do and they know how to behave in accordance with the laws of the seasons and with different levels of moisture and they can look at the clouds and tell you what the weather's going to be like in a week. And the great sophisticated meteorological equipment that they have like all down the coastline is completely wrong all the time. Whereas this old dude who lives, you know, a couple of blocks away, he knows because well, he says, well, it's, it's a very complex relationship between uh, the water and the fire, uh, that, the sun and the ocean. And when you can see how they interact with each other, you can tell what's going to happen next. You can see and you can see when it's good to stay in and when men will fight and when men will be peaceful. And you can, you can do this through this art form but in the west it's it's disregarded it's not entirely forgotten people like me and you are talking about it right now but it's it's disregarded largely in the mainstream and i think that those people can show us something and when you get the spiritual elders in those communities particularly uh let's say the the, the shamanic type peoples or the druidic peoples or whatever um whether the european or north american or mexican or whatever it is they will often tell you in their cosmologies and their cosmogenies that there is a repeated cyclical going down of the grid, as we would call it today, in that, as I said many, many years ago in an essay, you know, there's this re rebooting of the planet that the whole thing gets reset. And every time it's something to do with usually, obviously, a celestial body, usually the sun other times incoming objects. And it's perfectly natural. It's like this giant celestial pool game that just goes on, you know, and the one ball hits another and that sends that one out of orbit and the sun does a big, you know, coronal ejection and things change and consciousness shifts and plastics and glasses and silicon get destroyed, but other things get promoted and the technology of consciousness then doesn't require the infrastructure of Facebook and Twitter and Spotify and Pinterest and Pandora and whatever the hell it doesn't, we don't need those things because they're kind of like little training wheels, stabilizers on your bicycle. You don't really need them, but if you start to rely on them, you forget that you can, you know, you can do it freestyle that the real technology of telepathy and of shared mind, you know, the cloud consciousness, let's say is, there all the time in the background. But the more you use your Facebook and your email and your Twitter and whatever, the less likely you are ever, ever to be able to use the organic stuff, the real human stuff. And I think that the planetary reboots make sure, whether it's in Atlantean times, if we can speak esoterically, which I think we can on your show, can't we? Certainly. Whether it's Atlantean times or whether it's the 21st century, you know, in, in 2014 today, 
there, there are reboots because the Atlanteans got it wrong and they were pretty smart. They got it wrong and we've got it wrong. And it's like, well, you know, it's not bad. It's pretty, some good things have happened, but we're going to have to delete it and do something different. And that story is told in the oral traditions and in some of the formations and some of the sacred sites and circles and stones and dolmens and whatnot. They tell us these things. You know, I discovered this for myself by accident, really. I didn't know that this was a whole science of, you know, uh, understanding these forces and these timelines, but it's there. And that whole system of observing how consciousness, how man interacts with the planetary consciousness and the nature of this planet is a great, beautiful art that has a mysticism and a science about it and a biology about it and an astronomy about it, all these things interconnected. But we've not quite got it right yet. And time is running out. And the Amish know that. Well, you see, when I look at ice core samples and I look at uh, the intervals in time when cataclysms have occurred, we have this so-called technology that we have today. Shouldn't we be able to predict that this will happen again as it has happened so many times in the past? And they seem to keep that information away from the public for obvious reasons to, to protect uh, domestic tranquility. But if this has happened in the past, you would think that we, we should have learned from the experience. But it seems that we have this catastrophobia or this selective amnesia <laughs> that we forget what we went through in the past and we repeat the same mistakes again. It's, it's, I think when, when you separate spirituality from science and we advance more technologically is when the same thing happens all over again. It is, and it's the same thing we were talking about at the top of this hour of, of transience. You know, it's a question of mortality. We don't want to think about the fact that the planet's going to get rebooted very shortly. So, you know, when you see those things on science programs and the guy says, in 50 trillion years, the sun will go to the size of a peanut and then everything will be dead. You think, well, who cares? Because I won't be here. But if they said in two weeks, you know, then there'd be, as you say, that uh, lovely phrase that, you know, social and domestic tranquility will be, you know, ripped asunder. It will be yeah. gone and people will be running about and it'll be like the walking dead gone badly wrong. So it's a question of mortality, isn't it? Because you think, well, if something's happening a long way off, who cares? You know, so what if the sea levels are shrinking or rising and, so what? Who cares? You know, the whales and dolphins are dying. I don't, I don't care. And that's, that's a cultural implementation. That's a cultural installation. It's not a human one. Humans have very little fear when you come in. We talked about that before. We won't cover all ground, but there's not much fear in a human. Most of it is learned. And again, that's the mystical uh, training is to decondition. And when you decondition false ideas, and false correspondences, i.e. death and termination. That, that's a false correspondence. It does, it, there's no relationship between the two. When you do that, you become less fearful. You become more courageous. So a lot of people who look at uh, UFO material, there's, there's a degree of fear and trepidation. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they this? Are, well, they're a bit of everything. Get over it. Move on. Is it good to hide it? Should we just be open about everything? Well, most people are bloody stupid. Most people have been conditioned by what I call imperial culture, the, the culture of the empire, the old empire, which is there's one empire and that's it from, 
Egypt to Rome to Britain to America. It's one thing, one thing, always one thing. There's no, there's no other separate components to it. And that imperial culture tells human beings nothing. It just says, toil, eat, sleep, excrete, entertain, repeat, work eight hours, rest eight hours, sleep eight hours. That is your lot. That's what you do and you don't do anything else. And people buy it and all they want is some nice stuff to make it palatable, right? So the great joy of having something like Veritas is that it shows people that there are very credible men and women out there talking about things that are on the fringe of that and that call into question that equation and say, no, it's wrong. And in fact, cataclysm isn't really understood in the right way either. It's not really cataclysmic. It's not really a bad thing. You know, we've said before, you and I think of apocalypse is just the rending of the veil to say, well, oh, look at this, you know, that's all that word means. And it's a much better word to say apocalypse is where something system-wide changes and shows us another layer of truth. And anyone who's not up to that perishes. And I think it's a great way of doing it. And nobody's in control of that, believe it. Not any sort of, you know, demons or forces or aliens or reptilians or archons or there's nothing, nobody's in control of that. But they'd love you to think that they were and that they're pulling those big levers, you know, those pulling those big strings. They'd love you to think that, but nobody's in control of it. And essentially, your own sovereign mind and your own sovereign being, your own soul trajectory is safe. You don't need to worry about that. We just get tricked into giving our power away and giving our consent to all kinds of hideousness away. And you have to be reminded occasionally and people come along, teachers and philosophers and spiritual men and researchers and writers and poets and musicians, whoever it is, thankfully many thousands of these people, and they say to us, no, you know, don't buy into this big narrative. In the universe, there is no narrative. There's no big story. But humans are so insistent on putting a, what's the story? You know, who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? The white hats, the black hats, the new world order and the secret army of, you know, Jedi ninjas. And this is rubbish, claptrap, right? There's no narrative. The narrative is growth. The narrative is refinement. Some people try and stop it and slow it down, but you can't. So you have to become very confident in your own power. And that is a matter of spiritual philosophy, because if you can't exercise that perspective, you don't really believe it. Well, I remember in another show, we mentioned, you mentioned the two fears that we come to this world with, fear of heights, I believe you said, and fear of loud noises. But, you know, going back in time, it was the, the oral tradition that we had for thousands of years. Then the Gutenberg press came along, which also has a double-edged sword. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to have, read my books. But we went from the oral tradition to the printing press, which allows a plethora of disinformation and misinformation to enslave the yep. masses too. We need to go back to root teachings, as you said before, don't we? Well, we dealt with those very briefly earlier when we said separation, transience, identity, will, being, merging, transcendence, etc. The root teachings really are the things around which we have a look at when we come to earth. So they are particular 
if you like, enigmas that are embedded into the solar system. So in some hermetic traditions, uh, particularly in uh, Rosicrucian traditions, they will say that the whole solar system is set up to refine life from the outer system to in towards the sun. And the whole thing is there to as a school. And each level of reality, which some people will correspond with the planets themselves, very esoteric this. And some people say, well, it's not quite as strict as that. It's That's figurative. It's more to do with what we would perhaps call dimensions or levels of density. These things help refine what goes on. So we, we briefly talked about the root teaching of what it is to be separate and what it is to know transience in life. What is it to know identity? You know, I asked that question, what am I? That's one of the most important root teachings. The third one, identity. What are you? And people cannot answer that question until they've gone through all kinds of pathways and had all sorts of journeys. It's unanswerable and it's not to be written down talking about the press. Will, what is what is will? What is that force that determines what we do? So when you decide to do a radio show or make a cup of coffee or help your daughter with her homework, you know, what is it that compels you to do that? Is it just your brain or is it some kind of spiritual thing? Is it a soul? Is it, is it God? Is it something else? What is it? What is it that compels us from the outside or impels us from the inside? What is it that makes us do things and how can will be used to overcome, um, let's say negative influences how can will be used to bring about freedom how can it be used to bring about truth how can how can you impress your will upon the ufology community to help it be more sophisticated and more um, open in how it goes about its business now that's a question of will the fourth the fourth great teaching is will and then being being <laughs> great mystery you know, how I would say, how your true identity and will influence your daily deeds and conduct. That is your being. So as you progress through these teachings, you'll see knowledge doesn't really come into it. Knowledge is just a bit of a circus trick. It allows us to do things, but in itself, it has very little value. But once you have a certain um, sense of your identity and a sense of your will, then you can have better being, as I say, in how you, what you do and how you do it. Your behavior is very much involved with this. So being is a kind of higher behavior, not, not being a monk or a priest or weak and meek. I don't mean that. And I don't mean being strong like a warrior and very forthright. It's not that either. It's a certain sovereignty and a certain independence that comes through exercising will. But it has a grace about it, and it has a, a sophistication about it in in one's being. And sometimes you see it in a person, you just can feel it a mile off, and sometimes you sense it very delicately. But in that being, you start to realize that how you conduct yourself in life is more important than what you know. And that's a big one. Most people can't accept that. But if you don't know what you are, you can't accept anything. And the, the sixth teaching is merging. To know something, you must become it. It's a great mystical um, axiom, really. To truly know a thing, you have to embody it. To 
know evil, you must first embody it. To know good, you must first embody it. And then you can begin to understand and transcend and alchemize it. So, um, you know, as I've uh, said before, it's only really the mind that makes boundaries. So if you're making love with a beautiful person, you know, your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, it's the merging that makes it special, not just the sensual uh, physical aspect. It's the merging of two sentient beings. Just for a moment, the boundaries relax through this great sacred act, through this exciting, fun thing as well. The boundaries merge. Or if an artist stares at the petals of a rose, or the other day I was looking at a daisy and I was looking at the uh, the spiral in its yellow center and just thinking, gosh, you know, it's incredible how this uh, Fibonacci yeah. sequence is embedded into this plant that just grew up out of the dirt, you know. And just for a minute, I just lost my boundary of being this man. And I melted into it just a little bit, just a little bit. And I merged with it a bit. And I understood it more. And I could feel its perception, the, f- the perception of this plant. I could feel it. And that's what merging is. It's to realize that, truthfully, we're not separate. So you've moved a long way already from that first root teaching of separation. Um, we're, we're part of this great thing, which is why you, your teaching of identity must come first, because you can't accept that. You say, no, I'm me. And that's that. Maybe I die and go into this big ultra soup of divinity. I don't know. But right now, I'm me. And that's that. That's not true. And if you work from that untruth and perceive constantly, day by day from that untruth, you get it wrong and you can't see what's real. And whether you're looking at UFOs or whether you're looking at Sasquatch, big thing around here, very interesting, we'll have to talk about that one time, um, you're going to get it wrong because you don't know what you are and you're speaking from separation and you can't merge with the subject that is in hand. So you can't know. And that those all of those six things, separation, transience, identity, will, being, merging, lead to the seventh great teaching, which is transcendence. Similarly with merging, to transcend a thing, it must first be fully embodied and known. So it's the business of becoming a complete human. None of these are moving us away from our human nature, quite the reverse. They move us close, intimately close, to absorb our full, true human nature. And transcendence is the gateway then. So once you start to have this transcendent character about you, this transcendent ability, you can do all these amazing things like telepathy and astral projection and levitation and all kinds of cool stuff. Best of all, though, you make friends with that great silver gateway at the end of death. It's no longer the enemy. It becomes an ally, becomes a friend. And you think, well, everything's okay because I'm going to go through that gateway soon. So it's a win-win situation for the transcendent mystic. Not that we are, we, you know, there's many of them walking about. I'm certainly not one, but I'm, I'm trying my best. But the idea of it is very inspirational to say that if you make friends with death, that this silver gateway becomes your greatest ally and advisor and friend, great comfort, because you know that through that gateway is home. And it's like the hub of your next adventure then. You know, you can have a rest at last from this great toil and go and do something else, something more interesting somewhere else. And the the decision of how interesting and how cool that is, is based upon 
the success of those root teachings and your engagement with them and your spiritual development as a human being. If you don't spiritually develop, you get no decisions once you move through that gateway. You're back here. You're doing the same thing, almost identical, different face, different family, whatever, but you'll be doing the same thing, trust me. If you work on your spiritual development and you engage with these teachings, which we've said, these root teachings, they are a great framework. They're not the only one, but they're a very good one. They're the best one that I know of. They're a great framework for truth and for development. And it aligns you with what the universe is trying to do, which it is, it is trying to refine itself. It's not a finished piece. I said before when you and I have spoken, you know, creation is a thing that's still happening and it's trying to become more graceful and more elegant and more beautiful and more epic. And it needs us, really, to be part of that. And it wants us to participate in it. And by embracing these root teachings and involving them in our life, not just mentally, but physically and emotionally and sexually and psychologically, when they become part of us, creation is with us then. It's not just something that we just passively look at. It's with us. And it flows through us. And it's like, you know, the force with the Jedis or whatever, you know, to use that fictional concept. Suddenly this a tremendous power flows through that individual animal and it's no longer just an animal. So that's the transcendent element of it. So very exciting. And if anybody's interested in these things, as you kindly said at the top of the program, that I'm going to be talking about these in a really interesting workshop, if I don't say so myself, in, in September esoteric roots, which is, you know, the real business of being a human being, particularly in these funny times of great negative polarization. This is the counterbalance. And you mentioned life and the Fibonacci sequence and, and all that, but the way I see it, life to me is like a ride in an amusement park. Enjoy it until you get to the next ride. And the Fibonacci sequence, my goodness. I mean, this is so amazing to me. <laughs> Fractals, the golden mean, a code embedded into everything. Flowers, Word. trees, seashells, words, animals, including humans, and even life and time. But we have to take a one and only intermission. But let me read this because this sets the stage for the next topic that we'll discuss when we come back. The next topic I want to discuss has to do with pleasure and pain. We're innately programmed to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. That's simple. But I think that's the way we were wired. But also, there's this preponderance of escapism. I think, as you mentioned before, Facebook is a perfect place where you can witness that. Most people are happy uh, that weekend, the weekend is coming or, or sad that the weekend is ending or they cannot wait for a vacation for the next game to start on TV. There's this tendency of to seek destruction and relief from unpleasant reality, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. But why does it have to be this way? I know it's easier said than done, and it may sound utopian, but why can't we shape our lives so that we don't have to wait for the next weekend or for the next vacation in order to be happy? We'll discuss that when we come back. But Neil, once again, the the workshop that you have, how can people learn more about your work, the book, anything upcoming? So you go to neilkramer.com, uh, Kramer with a K, Neil Kramer, N-E-I-L-K-R-A-M-E-R.com. And you can see my downloads, workshops, 
my book, The Unfoldment, um, Alchemy of Will Workshop, Unfoldment Secrets and Sinks, all kinds of interesting things. And the workshop in September, very, very interesting. It'll be a great event. It's in a beautiful, historic, lovely hotel downtown in Portland. Easy to get to. Esoteric Roots, September the 13th to 14th. I'd love to see some of your audience there. I know you have very high quality people. I'd love to interact with them. Lots of people in that part of the world, and uh, I know people would fly probably to see you too. I remember seeing some of your workshops at other locations, and I have to tell you, you always come up with something new, very, very entertaining and enlightening, a lot of wisdom to be shared. So much more when we come back with Neil Kramer. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 